The Dr. Taz Show. The podcast, Dr. Taz. Superwoman Wellness. Here's Dr. Taz. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to Superwoman Wellness, where on every episode of this show, I am determined to bring you back to your superpowered self. Joining me today is Jennifer Fugo. I hope I've said your name correctly. Jennifer is a clinical nutritionist empowering women who've been failed by conventional medicine to beat chronic skin and unending gut challenges. Because she's overcome a long history of gut issues and eczema, Jennifer has empathy and insight into helping her clients uncover the missing pieces and doing integrative plans that work. She believes that you deserve better, as I do as well, and that's why she launched SkinTerrupt.com to interrupt the failed conversation about chronic skin problems and helpful alternatives that you just might not be aware of. She has a master's degree in human nutrition from the University of Bridgeport, and she's a certified nutrition specialist. I did that program as well. Her work has been featured on Dr. Oz, Reuters, Yahoo, CNN, and many podcasts and summits, including mine today. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm thrilled to have you here, and I am wanting you to share your story because it's a story that resonates, quite honestly. I got into the work I did because of my health. It sounds like you did as well. Tell us a little bit about that and how it led you down this path to really trying to dig into skin health. Yeah, so I, um, year, about uh, tw- 2007, I was an incredibly sick individual at 27 years old, really not well. I felt like I was in my 70s or 80s. And I had a lot of digestive problems. I had had them for at least 15 years at that point. And um, that was the beginning of me realizing that my doctors just telling me that everything looked normal, everything was fine, was not quite the case. And I was able to uncover a bunch of gut problems, nutrient issues, and um, some food sensitivities that were really problematic for me and turn my health around. So I I got this incredible interest in helping people as a result of that. And I predominantly focused on gut problems. But what I discovered in the process was like, hey, I've got to go back to school is how I ended up at the University of Bridgeport, which is an amazing program for anybody that's always looking for a a good master's program. And um, I, man, it's intensive. And back in 2014, I was done, I think I was done about my second year. And I started to notice these little bumps underneath my skin. They looked almost like like clear little glass bubbles. Mm -hmm. And eventually they got really itchy, started to ooze. The skin became very red. And I had this crazy rash flare. I had no idea what that was. Never had that before in my life. And it went away. Then it came back. It kept getting worse and worse. And so my dad, who's a doctor, I said, dad, I don't know what to do. And he's like, put some steroid cream on it, but use as little as you can possibly tolerate for a short amount of time. Thank God for my dad saying that. Um, And it turned out that I had dyshidrotic eczema that started on one finger, spread up the fingers onto the palm of my hand, spread to the other hand. And I ended up in what became three years of, I felt like a living hell. Um, It was even worse than what I had experienced prior prior with all my gut issues. And um, it felt incredibly bleak. Like even websites for alternative health that talk about skin issues. I tried a lot of the natural remedies they kind of worked, not really, weren't great. Um, and so I got to a point where I thought, geez, am I just like forever stuck with this? Like doctors don't run labs. The, the dermatologist would just look at it and say, I don't know what to tell you. You need another steroid cream. Put some Vaseline on your hands to keep the moisture in. I'm like, what? 
that doesn't make any sense. And so I started to dig into it myself from the perspective of if a client were to come to me, what would I do? And I figured I had to cast a wider net because I felt like the way that we were looking at things just gut focused only wasn't probably enough. And so after about a year, I was able to get my rashes to stop, um, the skin to rebuild healthfully. It was, it was not easy or simple because I re what I really don't want anyone to walk away from this conversation is thinking if they have a rash condition, you can just like magically make it go away in a week and you're a failure if you don't, because there's a lot of very unhappy people. I mean, I was one of them who felt miserable and there's a real high risk of depression, anxiety, even suicide in people that have certain skin conditions. And I want to always make sure to manage people's expectations. It took me a long time, but I'm glad that I came to the other side and I just didn't feel like I could just like move on with my life. I wanted to make sure that people who were still in that boat didn't feel alone and that they knew about the options that I never even knew about. So that's how I got interested in that. That's how you got into the whole thing. I don't think a lot of people realize that the skin is our largest organ. Mm -hmm. It covers so much surface area and it's one of our detox organs. So when we're having skin issues, it's usually not just about your skin. In fact, I have a very similar story. Mine actually started the same age, 26 to 28. And I was having a lot of skin issues too. Mine was more acne, but it was related to hormones and gut and all that other stuff. At the end of the day of your journey, what, what was it? What was driving sort of that rash and, and what rash did you have and how did you cure it? Well, as I said, I ended up the diagnosis, the official diagnosis was dyshidratic eczema and ah, specific okay. type of eczema that affects the hands and the feet. Yes. And it is very painful. <laughs> it is incredibly annoying. Um, most people go about looking at like allergens and, and environmental allergens, do a lot of allergy testing. Some people will then go on to try food sensitivity testing. Um, I haven't found the food sensitivity piece to be quite as important of a piece as um, a lot of people tend to think it is. Um, I found for myself, it was a lot of nutrient depletions. Mm. I had some ongoing, still gut issues. I mean, I had gut issues for most of my life. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't entirely <laughs> shocking that under that incredible amount of stress, trying to run a business and be in grad school full time, that, you know, some yeah. things would <laughs> take yeah. a hit. Um, obviously, stress was certainly a factor. That was a big piece of the puzzle that a lot of times we blow off and we say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. Well, stress does impact oh gut, gut permeability and impacts so much. And there can yeah. even be stressors that impact us that we don't even realize underneath the surface. Um, and so for that, you know, I think to me, it was like also um, blood sugar imbalances as well. I was starting to experience um, low blood sugar during the day where I'd have to take a nap for three hours. So it was a combination of different things. Um, well, I guess I have figured it out. So like until about earlier this summer, um, so in 2019, I was like, yes, I, I'm like almost three years out, clear, flare-free. I'm awesome. great. I'm like 100%. Yes. And then I went and changed my diet and added all this fermentable fiber into my diet. Back. And it started to come back a week yes. before we left for Italy. Uh. First possible time to have a flare. So my point in, is that while I do think that this might be something that I have to be aware of, like my skin is almost like a friend. It's like saying, hey, um, you need mm -hmm. to pay attention to yourself. You need to reconnect. You need to tune in. 
there is a direct connection between the gut and the skin that a lot of people, like we know, but we don't know to some degree. We, right. say, we say, yes, the gut impacts everything and it certainly does. But there's actual research that underscores that many factors within the gut play a role in the health of your skin and these chronic skin rash conditions like eczema, psoriasis, seborrheic dermatitis, which is dandruff. My husband had that. That can mm -hmm. oftentimes be related to fungal yep. overgrowth within the gut, where your body becomes confused and starts attacking the malassezia that mm -hmm. li naturally lives in the skin microbiome. Um, but there are so many distinct pieces of the puzzle that that's oftentimes why one person might find that the, this uh, cleanse or whatever it might really help them, but it right. does, it's a disaster for someone else or they get, they don't get any better. So <laughs> I've had a lot of clients will come to me saying, Oh, I did a candida detox. Somebody told me it was candida. I should have, I shouldn't have done this because my skin flared up even worse when I did that. And one of the main reasons why I think this is important for every woman out there who has this issue or you have children with this issue or a spouse whatever, is that your liver tends to get overwhelmed by what's happening in the gut. There are two different phases of detoxification. The second phase requires a lot of nutrients. If you don't have enough of those nutrients, things back up. And as you said, we have the skin is an elimination, mm -hmm. uh, is it one mode of elimination, right? We sweat things out. But your liver also is a part of our elimination yes. system. And so when your gut is a mess, it then burdens the liver with more than it already has a capacity to deal with. And if you aren't properly absorbing or not, let alone nourishing yourself, but if you're not absorbing the nutrients that you consume, right? Because we aren't what we eat. We're, we are what we absorb. Your liver may have a really hard time processing all of the toxins that are thrown its way when you go to do a, some sort of like candida cleanse or a gut protocol that you read about online that somebody else had, had really good luck with, the liver has to be taken into account first. So when I work with clients, the first area that I always start with is their liver to make wow. sure that we address what's already backed up and then have it prepared for whatever else we need to do. I think that is fascinating because I, for a long time, have, you know, the liver, when you look at Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine, is the root of so much. And it's considered a part of the gut. And conventional medicine, of course, you know, we're always taught that it's a separate thing. It's not related to the colon. It's not related to digestive health. But those guys, thousands of years ago, connected our liver health to everything. And the connection to stress, they had beautifully demonstrated saying, you know, when we, especially women, get stressed, what we do is we hold that emotion in the liver and the liver gets clogged, it gets emotionally mm -hmm. clogged, and then it gets physically clogged, and then we sort of store estrogen, we store it, we start spiking insulin, we have all these other ramifications from this liver getting clogged by our stress and by our emotions. So it's fascinating to hear you talk about the same thing, because I feel, feel like the poor liver gets ignored so frequently. So I think that's great yeah. that... Um, that you're, you're seeing that same exact pattern. You talk a lot about, uh, I wanna come back to the liver and what you do to clean out the liver, but talk to me a little bit about this concept. So we know a lot about leaky gut, 
but we don't know so much about leaky skin. So tell me like leaky gut, leaky skin, leaky kidney, leaky brain. <laughs> These are all things that we've been talking about. Why is everything leaking? So explain that to us. Well, that's interesting. Everything is leaking. It's yes. not necessarily a good thing. We want yeah. our barriers to be secure, right? right. So you can apply that to many things in life. But when we think about the digestive system and leaky gut, what we're saying is that there's a, this level of permeability or access from the outside world because the gut, the inside of our tubes is technically the outside of the body. Right. And so the outside world is able to come in contact and mingle with the inside of the body in a way that it's not supposed to. And so a similar thing happens at the la layer of the level of the skin in which the pH changes. We also can see that within the gut as well. Right. So both the colon, so a lot of people don't know that the colon and the skin actually should be more on the acidic side. They should not be alkalized. Right. And it so the skin, us. yes, exactly. And our skin should actually be a pH between 4.5 and 5, mm. not 8. 10, 12. So the higher, the closer we get to 14 means that we're very alkalized and there's this push. Guys, toward, you, can't oh, use, you can't use your pH testers on your skin. I know you're no. all for your pH testers and planting well, on your skin. It doesn't work that way. There, there actually are some big companies out there that are working on devices that you could test the pH of your skin. Um, nothing has come to market yet. Yeah. So there's a lot of exciting things going on, but what can happen is the pH balance shifts. The microbiome that lives on the skin starts to shift, and especially in cases of eczema, for example, we tend to see a shift towards staph aureus, which we shouldn't really see right. staph on the skin in healthy, in healthy individuals. Um, we start to see a breakdown of that lipid. It is a lipid-loving microbiome, by the way, which is what separates it from the gut microbiome that really thrives on fiber. Mm -hmm. However, the thing that's cool, and there's, there's some really interesting research to show that the short-chain fatty acids that are produced, think of them as almost like waste products of the bugs in your gut, those short-chain fatty acids actually make their way out to the skin and help to establish this healthy microbiome on the skin. So if you're having microbiome issues at the level of the skin, it also likely means that there's a problem internal as well. Right. So just doing topicals alone, oftentimes, that's why somebody will say, well, I use an antibiotic cream and it goes away and then it comes back. And that's usually why, because there's something internal going on that's not right. allowing the anchor to be set to hold everything nice and tight. So as far as what your skin microbiome or your skin barrier should look like, it should look like bricks that are nice and sealed, right? Think of a brick wall. Mm -hmm. Mortar mix is nice and the bricks are pointed. Right. Well, we start to see a breakdown of that mortar mix. Um, we actually have a protein called filaggrin that's produced by a gene called filaggrin. And one really interesting thing is about 30% of people who have eczema can have a SNP in this particular gene. That said, so it's not critical for everybody going, oh my gosh, I need to go get tested for that. Right. It's probably not worth it. And I've talked to a number of dermatologists who have said it's not worth it because at the end of the day, internal inflammation and external in inflammation, so scratching, for example, is mm -hmm. external inflammation. Yeah. Those two forms of inflammation actually drive this, um, the um, sort of a 
inefficient and inaccurate production of filaggrin. So one really great way to help your body produce that mortar mix, that filaggrin, is to reduce inflammation. So you've got to find out what's driving it. If it's gut infections, if it's gut dysbiosis, gut um, dysfunction, if there's even, you know, we talked about stress, trauma as well, prior and early in your life. It could have happened when you were a kid, could have happened a week ago. Any number of things, trauma is a major factor, hormone imbalances, thyroid problems. I mean, it, the list is pretty lengthy of what can cause issues. But so it's if you important. had to do um, yeah. like one, two, three, like what are the top three things that you're seeing as the root of a lot of skin issues? Like, uh, you know, my mom, for example, is a really tough case that we're working with in the practice and has just her micro skin microbiome has shifted and it's shifted mm -hmm. from probably staph epidermis which lives by the way for all of you who don't know it already lives on us it's normal to have that but it's shifted to staph aureus and maybe even MRSA which is methicillin resistant mm -hmm. staph and the poor lady like you know she sweats and she breaks out she into a flare she you know she's so frustrated because she's mm -hmm. so limited and we've spent a lot of time trying to figure out the immunology portion of it, the hormone portion of it, the gut portion of it, you know, how much is candida where her microbiome has shifted to yeast mm -hmm. overgrowth. So thinking about her and then thinking about what you see across the board with your patients and clients, like if you had to do one, two, three, what are the top three things that you're seeing as the root causes of these skin microbiome shifts? What do you think you're, if you had to I would something? I would say liver always for sure. So okay. we have liver detoxification challenges, meaning we need to support the liver, not detoxify it. Uh, right. Nutrient deficiencies are a huge piece to this. And then I would say a combo of gut microbiome and gut dis, uh, gut microbiome dysbiosis and gut dysfunction. Got so it. maybe we don't have enough stomach acid, et cetera. But that said, I would also add to this, if you have incredibly itchy skin that say Benadryl and Zyrtec won't touch, another interesting piece to test out is taking high doses of molybdenum. Um, that little known micronutrient is actually a really important factor in the sulfation pathway and helping us to convert sulfites to sulfates, which we mm -hmm. need in the body. Um, again, that's supporting the liver. So sometimes that can be very helpful. Um, I've interviewed a lot of people like Dr. Jess Petros, who've talked extensively about hidden infections in areas of the body that we tend to not even look like the nasal cavities and such. So it's worthwhile to look in other areas. Um, the other piece is drug reactions actions can certainly mm -hmm. play a role. Uh, mitochondrial insufficiency is another piece. Um, and if you tend to itch, this was, a, this was a tip from Laura Adler, who I've talked to extensively about environmental exposures. Yeah. If you tend to itch and see flares when you sweat, then the question is, what, are your, what is your body pushing out through the skin? Mm. You tend to detoxify heavy metals through the skin. There's a lot of different things going on. So that may be another area to look at, like what is being pushed out of the skin. If you sweat, get in the shower as quickly as possible, get the sweat off of you, don't allow it to dry, get the clothes off of you and mm -hmm. wash them. Don't wow. sit in them because you're allowing whatever's coming out of the skin to sit on the wow. skin. So, you know, for the patient out there, anybody watching us today, this is a lot of info, right? I mean, this is a lot of like big words, big language, mitochondrial insufficiency, a lot of the lingo that we're using day in and day out in practice. But I think I want to bring you guys back 
to the central concept of the liver and the gut being involved in leaky skin. I think that's really probably the take-home message if you're looking for like that punch of what we're going to get out of this particular episode. But here's what I want to know, Jennifer, like what is your favorite, what are a couple of your favorite strategies for dealing with the liver? Like we have a liver detox that we do in practice. They're all the liver supporting supplements. You know, they're liver supporting teas and herbs like dandelion root and um, mm -hmm. all of these other ones that we talk about. What have you seen work? I think I would love to know that what you've seen work for the liver for cleaning out that congested liver and allowing the stuff to flow through. One of the supplements that I really like that I'm sure, you know, your patients can get in your office is Amino mm -hmm. Detox from Designs for it? Health. Amino detox, okay, gotcha. it's all of the phase two nutrients that are necessary to help get the backup running, <laughs> get the trash yeah. out, so to speak. Um, that can be really helpful. Uh, sometimes just glycine powder can be helpful. It just depends on how severe of a mm. case it is. Glycine, glycine. is really necessary. Glycine is necessary for the glycine. Oh, no, it's, it's a good question. A lot of people yeah. are like, wait. So first of all, glycine is an amino acid. So technically okay. it's a fragment of protein. Okay, so there's that. Um, you would want to take it on an empty stomach. Sometimes you can mix it with a protein shake. But ideally, when you take amino acids, you should take them alone. And it actually has a little bit of a sweet flavor to it. Take mm -hmm. about three grams um, I usually tell people take it in the morning and if you really are struggling, the next thing would be to take it in the afternoon sometime around three or four because you want to keep, I found if you take liver support closer to bed time, you're likely to wake up. Uh, Nobody wants to wake yeah. up. So let's keep all the stuff earlier in the day. Yep. Um, and glycine is really inexpensive, B6. So the glycine pathway requires glycine and B6. Uh, a lot of times the gut, uh, depending if we're exposed to solvents, for example, mm -hmm. we'll see, or plastics and things like that, we'll see an increase in need in glycine. However, gut dysbiosis will also tend to overdrive that system as well. So glycine and B6 may be an easy thing. Just as an FYI to everybody listening, B6 is not something you want to take a whole lot of because there are toxicity issues. So speak with your practitioner, whomever you're working with, before you just go and start taking it on your own. Um, and, and you want to know how much you have in your system and if you need more. Um, but I would say that, um, you know, broccoli sprouts mm -hmm. are a great form of sulforaphanes that help us yes. detoxify our estrogen and other sex hormones. Um, trying to think. Beets can be really great as well. Uh, the only issue is if you have a salicylate problem. So some people with skin issues would read about eating a low salicylate diet. I'm mm -hmm. going to tell you right now, if you have a problem with salicylates, you need glycine and B6. That's gotcha. actually what you need. Um, so you're not you sensitive. So, so again, for the folks watching, and I'm still taking mm -hmm. notes, for the people with, uh, with uh, salicylate issues, how, how can they differentiate themselves? How do they know that they have that issue versus a high histamine versus candida yeah. versus all this other stuff? So some people will notice that they seem to react if they take aspirin, for example, because it's a salicylate, mm -hmm. um, or they react to things like willow bark, which is one yeah. of the, that's one of the more natural version of aspirin. Um, sal so anything or anything with salicylic acid. So if it gets applied to the skin, but if you eat high salicylate foods, so you could just look up salicylate food list. A lot of, um, especially eczema based diets will tell you to eliminate or uh, salicylate or do a low salicylate diet. I really find that to be um, overkill. I don't like elimination diets a whole lot. I think we should eliminate at the base gluten at least. Yeah. Yeah. And then from there, let's be smart and really make judicious, intelligent choices because the more we, you're already miserable to then take away 
so much food and make your life even more difficult and obviously removing nutrients that are necessary. Um, I think there's a real concern. I mean, I've been there, so I know personally what that's like. And I work with a lot of people that end up on like five foods by the time they get to me. So, um, I would just say that salicylates can be an issue, but it's a liver issue, not a digestive issue. There's you, you're not sensitive digestive speaking to mm-hmm. or gut speaking to those uh those foods and there are a lot of really healthy foods as well so glycine b6 with supervision molybdenum which is the <laughs> micronutrient that i see on a lot of the tests that i do so you're saying to supplement for these yes. patients what dose do you like to supplement with typically um I usually use, I'm trying to think what it is. There's one that I use and I apologize. I don't know the name of it offhand, Um, but I'm, I'm happy to give that to you if you want to put it in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Maybe when we post it. Yeah. And the the other thing, the last little point I would love to also point out to people is there's this big craze with coconut oil. And I just want to caution people who are listening. If you've like, if you've read the coconut oil is good for everything and it, it is good. It's not good for skin rashes. Um, some people will say that for psoriasis, it tends to be okay, but for especially for eczema where there is skin dysbiosis happening at the level of the microbiome, coconut oil is way too antimicrobial. It's also very alkaline. So it's at like an eight. Remember I was saying we want to be down at a 4.5 and that's a huge jump by the way, right. if you're not familiar with the pH scale. Um, and it's just the, the um, molecules of coconut oil are too saturated. They're too large to be absorbed. So a lot of times it will feel like saran wrap mm-hmm. laying on top of the skin. Um, and I've actually noticed an increase in people who are allergic to it topically. So they thought that they had eczema and they were applying coconut oil to their skin and noticing that it was um, getting inflamed, red, puffy. And in actuality, once they stopped, because they read an article that I wrote about it on my site, they, they were like, oh my gosh, it was the coconut oil. Wow. So just be mindful. There are other oils out there that are better options. Um, if you do have rashes, I, I would say skip the coconut oil. If, Which if oils you, would you recommend then? What are your favorites? I love jojoba because okay. it's actually the closest to your sebum that your skin produces. It's a wax. It's also tends to be hypoallergenic. So it's a okay. liquid wax, believe it or not. Um, I also love avocado oil. <coughs> Olive oil is also really great, believe it or not. Um, uh, there's a lot of other great ones like um, apricot oil. Mm-hmm. Um, I even like CBD oil to use mm-hmm. topically, um, but it okay. just has to make sure, again, it should not have a coconut or MCT oil base. It should okay. be hemp or olive oil base with no flavorings in it. And it topically? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's actually, there's, <laughs> yes, so there's actually some really interesting research that's coming yeah. out comparing it to using um, topical medications and actually helping people get off of different meds that they're on because of eczema. So there was a great paper written by Dr. Peter Leo about it, and I've interviewed him extensively about this, and he uses it in his his clinical practice. He's a, wow. he's a dermatologist. Yeah. So um, it can help really help reduce inflammation. It can help your dependence 
reduce your dependence on topical steroids. So feel free to discuss it with your doctor to see if it's safe for you. Um, but I would just say, uh, be careful of the salves. A lot of times they contain menthols. You, that's why I tend to just tell people, just stick with the oil, just apply some drops and spread it out just as you would a, a regular oil. Gotcha. Well, great advice. And I do, before I leave you, I know we're getting close on time here, but um, I do, you talked about labs or you mentioned something about labs, like what labs, like for anybody out there listening who can't come to our practices or come see us, like what are some of the labs that you recommend that they do to help them sift through this issue of leaky skin, salicylates, all this other stuff? Or are there things that you just know are super reliable and that you you'd like to order? Well, I would say first off the bat, you have to know that conventional labs and functional labs are, are different. Thank you. They're different, but they're friends and they yes. help take a square right. and turn it. So you now see that it's actually a box. Right. So it gives us a different perspective, but they oh, complement one another. I love that analogy. I think I'm yeah. going to use that. That's awesome. <laughs> um, and, and so what I would say is as far as conventional labs, these are things you can ask your regular doctor for. It's highly unlikely your dermatologist is going to run them. Some will, most won't. They'll say, I don't do that. Mm -hmm. um, but you, oh, I always like to ask for a CBC panel, mm -hmm. a fasted CMP, I love to look at the lipids as well, just to get a sense of what's going on with the liver. Um, sometimes people have too low of cholesterol. Yes. Surprisingly. Yes. So, um, you know, we've had this push to push it lower and it's important to know that because we need cholesterol in our body. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would also look at vitamin D, vitamin A, mm -hmm. B12, folate. Um, I also love to look at erythrocyte or red blood cell zinc because mm. zinc is really important, especially if you've had trouble with your rashes or your skin healing. Right. That oftentimes is missing. Um, even finding a, an organic, very clean diaper cream with some zinc in it, and you can apply it topically, sometimes that can help. Mm. Um, that's sometimes a good easier step than taking zinc orally and messing up your copper-zinc copper ratio. Gotcha. Um, and that tends, at least from my research, not to, to do that. Um, and uh, I like to look at homocysteine as a functional B6 marker. Right. Um, those are probably at least generally speaking, what I like to look for, um, just, just depends on what else somebody has going right. on. Um, if that homocysteine is high, are you thinking those people are low in B6? Yes. Yeah. And they tend to be like when, yeah. so then you take that, you're looking also at their blood cells. So sometimes with the CBC panel, you can see things like iron. Yeah. A ferritin is another good, good one to take, to look at iron storage levels. Right. Um, but you can see B12 folate and B6 in some of the way that the red blood cells show up. Um, so homocysteine <coughs> can be helpful. And then um, you look, I love to look at functional labs paired with those. And so an organic acid panel will help us because it'll look at other markers that will help corroborate like B6, for example, B12, gotcha. et cetera. Um, I always like to do them together because I've had some instances where on an organic acid panel, it looked like the person was low in B12, for example. Mm -hmm. And you get the serum value, which is it's really fine. your storage form. No, it's high. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so you really have to look at both. And I think if you are a practitioner or you're someone that is somehow involved with that, you really need to be careful before, you know, I think a lot of times people think more is better. That's not always the case. Mm -hmm. We don't want to just start throwing supplements at problems. We need to understand what the underlying issue is. And so I love an organics panel um, that can be really helpful and a really good stool test can sometimes also pick up, especially if somebody's so uncomfortable, really severe. They have a history of, say, traveling in third world countries. Um, <laughs> you know, that's a big red flag. If you've been to India, if you've been to Nepal, if you've been to Africa, um, most of the clients that I've seen that have really severe skin issues that have traveled to those countries all have an infection of some sort, whether it's bacterial, fungal, or parasitic. Wow. So um, it, it's important. To, I think that's usually like, that's my first level of looking gotcha. um, in conjunction with a really good case history and digging through information that probably nobody's asked before. I mean, I love that idea of thinking about the functional labs because many of them are out of pocket, but thinking about them as, as a box and giving you a three-dimensional view because I've had the same thing happen where you have high B12s, high serum B6s, mm -hmm. and then you go and do the functional labs or the integrative labs and it's low, you know? And so it's, again, trying to, to bridge that discrepancy. So looking at intermediate markers like the organic acids and homocysteine and stuff is, is really helpful with all of that. Yep. So I think that's great. Any other tips before we leave you today on building healthy skin and thinking about your skin as a microbiome, a living, breathing organism, a detox organism, yes. something that is so essential, not just for our looks, but also just <laughs> for our well-being and our vitality. Anything yes. you think the listeners can do now to start building healthier skin or you would advise them to do? Yeah. So basically I would say, number one, start listing out all of your symptoms. Don't just fixate on the skin symptoms alone and don't just fixate on the diagnosis you have. Be very clear and specific about what your skin rashes, your skin rash experience is like, because it can be different from one person to the next. And those clues can actually help someone like myself or yourself figure things out of what we, yes. where we need to dig. Um, so that's a big piece of the puzzle. The other thing I would say is if you can tolerate it, adding some ground flaxseed to your diet can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, it may be the omega-3s. I'm not, but I've had some really good luck with adding ground flaxseed, um, adding some oats, but always make sure there are certified gluten-free oats. Um, regular oats are contaminated with gluten. Um, to your diet can be also helpful because of the beta-glucans. Uh, Wild-caught cold water fish can also be really helpful because of the omega-3s. Mm -hmm. um, I think generally speaking, a varied diet is the best, but also make Making sure you're getting enough protein. Um, 70 to 80 grams a day is a good place, at least that I found, because if your skin's really messed up, you've got to rebuild tissue. Oftentimes you're depleted. You need uh, protein to build your neurotransmitters, to build some of your hormones, like your thyroid hormone, and all of your enzymes. And that's aside from muscle. Right. So we do really need to make sure that we're getting enough protein that you haven't paired it back to the point where you're just not getting enough. And protein oftentimes, especially for women, as we get into our later 30s and shifting toward that perimenopausal stage into menopause, having adequate protein is really important and can very much help your mood and, and many other things. So that's where I would, that's where I would start. Awesome. Well, great information today. Thank you so much. And I know everyone watching today and listening today hopefully benefited from all this great skin information. Your website again is skinterrupt.com, correct? If anybody yes. watching or listening today wants to connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? I would say skinterrupt.com. I'm also over on Instagram, Jennifer Fugo, and I host the Healthy Skin Show. So if anybody's looking for more information, 
got a ton over there. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining me today and for everybody else. Thank you guys for watching and listening to this episode of Superwoman Wellness, which by the way, is now on Spotify as well. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it and share it with your friends, but I will see you all next time. Thank you for joining.